Hey, welcome to Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show. Great to have you joining us today. My name is Dr. Dan, longtime sports medicine physician with Texas Sport and Spine. Hey, if you're just catching our show for the very first time, we're a sports entertainment show doing it from a sports medicine niche. And what we do is talk about all the different injuries that are out there in the news, whether it be your favorite football player, basketball player, baseball player, you name it. We talk about it here on Docs and Jocks. I do it each week with my co-host, Ferris Potter. Ferris is the voice of Grand Canyon University, longtime sports broadcaster, actor. Ferris, thanks for being on Docs and Jocks. Yeah, look forward to it every week. A lot going on. Man, every is there week, a lot going especially on? Especially this week. A lot yeah. of medical things and a lot of non-medical things happen. <laughs> yeah. And what we focus here on Docs and Jocks, just so you know, we talk about the medical things here. So we let a lot of other uh, talking heads talk about all the other stuff going on. But we talk about what's going on with maybe some of the famous uh, players that are injured right now. Hey, we are going to have some great guests on today's show. Our first hour, which is brought to you as our SB Nation listening audience, uh, national syndicated show now with SB Nation. Man, we're great to announce that and fun to announce that is that we're going to have on Tim Couch. If you haven't heard of Tim Couch, you're probably under the age of 30. Tim was a uh, Heisman Trophy finalist back in 1999. He was the very first uh, pick of the uh, Cleveland Browns back in uh, 1999, and he went on to have uh, played with them for four or five years, had a uh, very stellar, unbelievable uh, college career with University of Kentucky where he played for the Air Raid offense under uh, Coach Hal Mummy, set all kinds of records. Ferris, you probably don't know this about Tim Couch, but he is – considered by ESPN as the sixth greatest high school athlete ever. The guy averaged 36 points for his basketball team. So great football player, great basketball player, great athlete, especially in high school and college. And they went on and led the Browns to their uh, playoff run in 2000 and uh, I believe it was 2002. So did you say 36 points? 36 points a game. Oh, yeah. you you averaged 35. That's why he's yeah, three, ahead yeah. of you. Yes, it was exactly. You have the numbers right. The decimal points off is 3.5, but yes. <laughs> very similar. Very similar. We'll have very Tim close. Couch on. We're going to have on in our second uh, hour, we're going to have on Mike Ryan. Mike is a uh, hitting expert up in the Chicago area, and he's one of the guys that's kind of talked all about the uh, launch angle and velocity off a of bat. He uh, recommends he can get any player up over 100 miles an hour with their uh, swing wow. velocity. But we'll talk about that and more here on Docs and Jocks. Remember, you can listen to us anytime, anywhere on our iTunes podcast, Docs and Jocks, D-O-X-N-J-O-X. Also, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Man, we'd love to be part of that. D-O-X-N-J-O-X. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show. My name is Dr. Dan, longtime sports medicine physician, coming to you from inside our Docs and Jocks radio studio, coming to you from deep in the heart of Texas, joined each week by my co-host, Ferris Potter. Ferris is the sports broadcaster for Grand Canyon University. And Ferris, I thought we'd jump right into the sports medicine news here on Docs and Jocks. Man, you heard uh, this week, big, uh, big story out of Dallas. We are now are seeing that the Dallas uh, Pro Bowl center, Travis Frederick, is uh, going to be uh, not part of the uh, opening games or possibly even the season with the Dallas Cowboys, which could really put a huge damper on the Dallas Cowboys season, wow. in my opinion. When you're talking about the Dallas Cowboys, one of the things you think about, obviously, Dak Prescott, Ezekiel Elliott, but the, one of the huge parts of why they've had some of the success they've had over the last few years is because of that incredible offensive line. And now we see Travis Frederick, who's kind of the pillar of that, the uh, Pro Bowl center, just came out and announced he has a disease process. It's a neurological disease, Ferris, called Guillain-Barre syndrome. Have you ever heard of that? Had you ever heard of Guillain-Barre syndrome? You ever even heard I that I don't term? believe I have, huh? It's uh, They call it, a, everywhere I read right now, they call it rare. I guess because I do the type of study that looks for that type of syndrome. We do I do a nerve study called a... Uh, EMG nerve conduction study, electromyography slash nerve conduction study. And we actually, part of what I do in my day job at Texas Board and Spine is measure 
people's nerves, how fast they travel, and try and isolate or localize what the injury is to different neurological conditions. The more common one, Ferris, you might have heard of is like carpal tunnel syndrome. You've heard of people having carpal tunnel sure. syndrome. You know, yep. they work on computers, and that's a slowing of the nerve as it go, goes across your wrist. Well, Travis Frederick has this uh, condition called acute in, uh, acute idiopathic or acute inflammatory inflammatory demyelinating peripheral polyneuropathy. There will be a test. It's AIDP for short, Ferris. But Guillain-Barre syndrome is what most people call it. And it is where the tiny little wispy nerves in the very tips of your fingers and toes start losing their myelin sheath. And that is, think of the nerves in your body, Ferris, as if you had a copper wire. And the copper wire is going to have a piece of copper down the middle, and it's going to have a sheath around it called myelin. And that myelin sheath allows the nerve, just like an electrical wire, because it's insulated, the electricity travels faster down that copper wire because you have that plastic insulation around it. And that's really how your body works. You have these nerves carrying an electrical uh, charge down that nerve. It travels faster as it has that myelin sheath around it. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's basically how it works. And when you lose that myelin sheath, suddenly you start feeling a tingling or numbness. If it gets too severe and the uh, Guillain-Barre as it progresses can sometimes start causing weakness where you can't use the hands, the feet, the legs start feeling heavy. If it progresses and what happens is actually an autoimmune disorder, which means Travis, Travis Frederick's body is attacking that myelin sheath with his antibodies. What we normally use antibodies for is to attack bacteria and viruses, you know, foreign things that get in our body. Well, in some people, they'll recognize their own body as something foreign, and they start attacking it. And that's what happens in Guillain-Barre syndrome as you start attacking that uh, myelin sheath. And so now we have Travis Frederick who started noticing he was having numbness tingling in his, in his extremities, and they thought maybe he was having stingers, which is a stretch injury to the nerves in your neck. But they, after they did the nerve study on him, they found that he has this Guillain-Barre syndrome. So the question is, Always as a Dallas Cowboy fan, and the big question here on Docs and Jocks is how long is he going to be out? And herein right. lies the rub with neurological disorders. We have no earthly idea because everybody's different. How severe the initial Guillain-Barre is, in other words, how fast it progresses, how far it moves up. Some people, Ferris, will get this. Remember your diaphragm, which boozes your lungs in and out and allows you to breathe. Your diaphragm just a fancy muscle that's innervated by a nerve, a phrenic nerve. They can get affected by Guillain-Barre syndrome, and you have to be put on a ventilator to breathe for you because your diaphragm doesn't work correctly. So how fast it progresses, how severe it initially is, plays a part in it. How long nerve injuries take to come back is different in everybody. You, I'll have one person, Ferris, I'll see a football player that has a stinger. He stretches a nerve in his upper shoulder, and I'll say, oh, this is a pretty minor injury when I did his clinical exam, maybe a little bit of weak, but it's not too bad. And he'll take like six months to a year. The next guy horrific like he can't move his arm terrible pain the muscle's gone and i'll say hey you're gonna be out a year and he's back in a month it's just crazy how nerve injuries are also different in how your body repairs them so to give you any idea of when travis frederick will be back we can go back and look in history and say well what other football players have had this mark schlereth had this you know what we call him ferris what's his nickname the big stink or something his nickname is stink stink <laughs> yeah just stink he's a he's a sports broadcaster a commentator and stink had this and he was actually he missed um uh, I believe he said it was an entire year before he felt normal again. He missed three months of the football season due to Guillain-Barre syndrome. So there is a little precedent of this happening in a lineman like uh, Mark Schlereth. 
So, but you really just never know. But that's part of the reason we do the neuroconduction study, and I don't have the results, obviously, if Travis Frederick didn't share that with me or his neurologist, whoever did the test, didn't share it. But that was what they found. But that'll be a big part of the Dallas Cowboys' success or not, whether or not Travis Frederick is able to play at all this year. And if Joe Looney, I think that's his name, Looney is his last name, is going to come in and fill in for him, can he fill in? He's some big shoes to fill for sure. What do you think about the Dallas Cowboys' so, chance? So this is not something you can play through. It affects you or like strength-wise. It's not just a pain tolerance thing. It's something you got to step away from the game to get fixed yeah. by various treatments. Yeah, what they do is, and what Travis Frederick's been going through, is they basically give you an IV uh, tr- transfusion or give you IgG, which – basically tries to uh, keep your immune system from going crazy on the uh, myelin sheath. So they're trying to basically give you something that helps block your autoimmune response to you seeing your body's nerves and the coating around the nerves as foreign. So is there a fix it? There usually isn't a fix. There's a slow it down, try and decrease the symptoms from the beginning. And most of the time the symptoms are numbness, tingling, then it becomes a kind of, we call it dysesthesia. Have you ever fair sat on your... Uh, leg and had your whole leg fall asleep because the way you were sitting or sleeping right you know initially it was kind of numb and tingly as you got up it was the numb tingly feeling kind of became this painful sensation that's we call those dysesthesias but it's an uncomfortable burning from a nerve being aggravated and that's what travis Frederick is going to be dealing with and then the other big part is how weakness how much weakness did he have involved with this did it progress to where it's pushing on you know, it caused so much nerve injury that you now have weakness. Remember, nerves give you sensation, and they give you they supply your muscles, which give you strength. So if you have a nerve injury, you lose strength, and you have funny sensations. And that's what Travis Frederick is going to have to be dealing with. But now if he's weak with it, man, I, I don't see how he could be coming back. I mean, Travis Frederick. Couldn't play through it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and he's, a, he's at a, an NFL center. So they said it was affecting his arms. So you would have to assume that he is going to be – I mean, if he's – let's say Travis Frederick is – 75% of his previous strength. Well, that's for you and I, he'd be stronger yeah. than you and I still, but he's not stronger than the nose tackle that's right or nose guard that's right over top of him, right? So he needs to have yeah. that strength back. There lies the rub on when can you get him back. Then he needs to be back full strength. So pretty tough. Yeah, it, he he's tweeted out a few things and he said that he's feeling better after two, yeah. uh, you know, two. Um, you know, they tried to help him and, and gave him some two treatments. Yeah. And he said he's feeling better from a strength standpoint. So obviously that means he was feeling very weak. But, yeah, you're right. You can't – I mean, you can't go at 75%, you know, in the NFL. But as far as how it affects him, I mean, look, the Dallas Cowboys, you know, I mean, Aikman, Irvin, Emmett, they got all the praise. Prescott, Witten, um, Ezekiel Lott got all the praise. But when they're good, it's because their offensive line dominates. Yeah. Much, and if yeah. they don't have a dominant offensive line – I mean, it's going to be tough. Dak's only so much he can do, you know? Yeah, and he's got all new receivers, too. Oh, I mean, yeah. we've talked about it. They, it's going to be interesting for Dallas. Let's face it. Troy Aikman is not Troy Aikman if he doesn't have Larry Allen and Mark Stepnoski, and the list goes on, right? Yeah. Same thing with Dak I mean, Prescott. Emmett wasn't Emmett. No, you know? no, yeah. Without those guys. He's a great running back. Doesn't take diminish him. But, yeah, you got to have somebody blocking. So, I don't – I mean, I'd be nervous if I, was a, if I was a Cowboys fan. I'm sure they're – Working the phones, trying to figure out what they can do. Well, just to add a little assault to the wound, Cowboys also had uh, Zach Martin go down, Pro Bowl guard. He was injured with in the preseason. By the way, you and I need to talk about preseason if we think it's worth it because, man, you see so many guys getting uh, injured, and is it worth it? Is it better to be fresh 
uh, for the season, or is it better to get game reps? And that's the big question. Zach Martin had found out his MRI showed he had a bone bruise, no ligament injury, which is a whoo for the Cowboys because they needed some good news, especially with uh, Travis Frederick going down for who knows how long. Todd Gurley, the Rams running back, came out and said, every player's dream is not to play preseason. So let me ask you, Paris, here in our last 30 <laughs> seconds, do you think it's better to be fresh uh, for the for the season, or is it better to be game ready because you ran the plays with your team in preseason? Which would you pick? Very quickly, I think I think in the past you had to have the preseason because guys didn't get in shape until the preseason. Now guys are taking better care of themselves. Yep. You need to cut the preseason down to just a couple of couple of games max and yep. get out there and play. You and Todd Gurley, man, sound like you're the same. Hey, when we come back, we're gonna be talking with first round pick for the Cleveland Browns, now Cleveland Browns sports broadcaster, Tim Couch, when we come back here on Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show. Remember you can follow us on iTunes. Docs and Jocks, D-O-X-N-J-O-X. We'll be right back. This is Dr. Dan and Ferris. Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show. My name is Dr. Dan, coming to you from inside, deep in the heart of Texas, the Docs and Jocks radio studio. Great to have you join us today. Remember, you can always follow our sports medicine radio show by going to iTunes, and there you can follow Docs and Jocks, D-O-X-N-J-O-X. And uh, if, you're, if we're not hurting your area where you're listening, your radio station, man, love to have you be part of our iTunes podcast as well. Hey, we are joined, Ferris, this week by a good friend of ours, Hal Mummies, a quarterback at the University of Kentucky who went on to have a stellar career at the University of Kentucky where he was a Heisman Trophy finalist, set all kinds of SEC records, and went and played for the Cleveland Browns. We have on Tim Couch. Tim was the number one draft pick in 1999, the Cleveland Browns. Tim, thanks for being on Docs and Jocks. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. I appreciate it. Hey, man, let's go back in time a little, Tim. I was reading your bio, and of all the things you did at Kentucky and in the NFL – I think it pales in comparison. ESPN rated you as the number six all-time high school athlete. That is incredible. You had for our listening audience who knows all about your football career. Take us back in time where you averaged thirty-six points per game as a basketball player. Take us through that when you used to do multiple sports, as uh, you and I did as kids. When you were doing all that, uh-huh. take us back in time a little bit. Yeah, you know, I always thought of myself as more of a basketball player than a football player, actually. Wow. And, and um, you know, I, I had a ton of Division One offers in basketball as well. And then, you know, my junior and senior year of, uh, of high school, I became the number one recruit in the country in football. So, wow. um, But I still wanted to play both sports. And I was still, you know, when I was getting recruited, I, I would tell teams that I was going to play both sports and those kind of things. And I actually came to Kentucky to play both sports. And I was wow. going to play basketball here as well. And uh, but when I got here, you know, I just realized how difficult that was going to be. I, I went over and practiced with the team a couple times right after my freshman year of football, and um, I just realized how difficult that would be to not only, you know, make grades and, you know, stay eligible, yeah. but to put the time in that was going to be necessary for me to be an SEC quarterback. And then while I was trying to play basketball at the same time, it just just became a little bit too difficult. But I really uh, I really regret not getting the, uh, you know, not taking the time to, or the effort to go out and play basketball at the same time. Absolutely amazing, Tim. 3,023 points in your high school basketball career. Pretty cool fair show question for tim couch <laughs> hey tim so was that rick patino and, and and who were you matched up against uh, when you went in practice with those guys you know it, it was rick patino tubby smith was on that staff billy oh, donovan wow. was on that staff Dang. uh but it, it was 1996 <laughs> so i mean we were absolutely loaded i think we had 11 nba players on that team it was antoine walker ron mercer <laughs> oh, wow. tony delt jeff shepherd um anazi muhammad uh i mean just uh, a, a ton of guys and um, wow. you know, but I, I I got over there and ran ran them down to court with those guys a couple of times, and I realized that I wasn't going to be able to play with them unless I was doing it full time like they were. So 
I got right. a I got a pretty big wake up call that day. Let's talk about where you were able to play, and that was at University of Kentucky as a quarterback there, where you set an SEC record for passing yards in a year, and I think your team had the uh, record for offensive yards for a period of time as mm-hmm. well. And it seems like your career just kind of just skyrocketed once you joined Coach Hal Mummy, who came your sophomore year with the air raid offense. Talk us through about when you found out you were going to be starting quarterback and Coach Mummy came and the type of offense you were going to be running that sophomore year. Yeah, my freshman year, uh, Bill Curry was the head coach, and uh, he actually had me running the option, which was wow. which was pretty crazy considering yeah. I broke every passing record in the history of high school football. <laughs> yeah. uh, so he wanted me to run the option for some reason, <laughs> and then it was it was ugly, man. It was just awful, and I was struggling. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, CM Newton, our athletic director, went out and hired Hal and brought him in. And you know, fortunately, Mike Leach was on that staff as the offensive coordinator yeah. as well. And, wow. Uh, the first day, the first day I met with Hal, he looked at me and says, you know, because there was still kind of a, a quarterback controversy. There was a senior quarterback ahead of me, and you know, he was an option style quarterback. And Hal looked at me and he said, "You're the starting quarterback, and we're going to throw it 50 times a game." And I said, "Coach, that's all I need to hear, man." And you know, from that day, we <laughs> took off and we were slinging it, man. We, when we got off the bus, we were throwing it. It was, yeah. I mean, it, he just. He considered a run play a wasted play. When he told me that, I'm like, we're going to get along great. That's awesome. That's awesome. Was there there any time in that first year when you were trying to be an option guy that you thought, hey, maybe I'll just do do away with this football and go, go, go play on the basketball team? Oh, absolutely. I had every thought possible. You know, I had originally committed to Tennessee. And uh, Peyton was there, and he was a couple years ahead of me. So um, I didn't want to go and sit and, you know, redshirt and do that kind of thing. So that's why I ended up at Kentucky originally. Uh, But I actually, you know, called Coach Fulmer and and Coach Cutcliffe during during my freshman year and told him I'm coming at the end of the year. I was was set on transferring down there and, uh, you know, just getting out because it wasn't working out for me here at Kentucky. And we were an awful football team. Um, you know, I'm not, you know, just, you know, being a home state kid is, you know, probably the biggest reason why I ended up here anyway. But, um, you know, I just, uh, I thought a lot of things, you know, at the end of that year. But fortunately, you know, it worked out where they brought in Hal for me and the perfect system. And it just kind of all worked out at that point. Well, you kind of answered my next question. I was going to ask you, you, know, you by the way, you, Tim Couch goes on to become the SEC player of the year in 1998, consensus All-American 1998, first team All-SEC 1998. He's a Heisman uh, Trophy finalist. I was going to ask because really I, I'm, I'm from uh, a Big Ten area. Area. And I remember when I was watching you and how Mummy do your thing at Kentucky, I'm thinking, why is this guy at University of Kentucky? You really put them on the map football-wise. And I was going to ask you why you went to Kentucky, but it was, was it because it was your hometown or your home state? It was. There was a lot of pressure. You know, Kentucky had never signed, uh, you know, the National Player of the Year in football. And, um, you know, they, Kentucky had actually won one game my senior year yeah. of high school when they yeah. were recruiting me. They were, they were terrible. And uh, I had no intentions of going to Kentucky other than I wanted to play basketball there. But um, you know, my dad was a huge Kentucky fan, and there was a lot of you know family pressure for me to go to Kentucky. And you know, so I, I gave it a shot. I, I told my dad I would go there for a year. We'll see how it works out. If it's not going well, then I'm, I'm going to go back to Tennessee because you know where I grew up in Kentucky and Southeast Kentucky. I grew up just as close to Knoxville, Tennessee, as I did to Lexington, Kentucky. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up a Tennessee football fan, and uh, you know all those good teams they had back in the days. And um, so I, that's where I wanted to go. But, I, you know, my dad convinced me to go to Kentucky, and, you know, I didn't want to do it at the time. But, you know, looking back at it now, I'm, I'm certainly glad I did because it, it worked out great for me. Perfect, yeah. Hey, Tim, you know, obviously you, you were thinking about the next level, I'm sure, at some point there. You know, a lot of times uh, people will say, oh, this guy is going to be, a, you know, a product of just an offense where they sling it to 50 times, and that's fun in college. college yeah. But did you, ever, did you ever worry that your game wouldn't translate? Did you ever worry that people might think uh, differently of you? Or did you think, no, I, I'm – I'm pretty confident I can take this to the next level. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, playing in that style of offense, you know, that's always the obvious question. Is it just the system or is it the player? 
And, you know, I, but I felt, I always felt confident in my abilities. You know, I knew I could throw the football and I had prototypical size, you know, at 6'5, 230 pounds. I knew I was the right size to play. It wasn't just a, you know, an undersized guy out there making plays because of the system I was in. I was making, you know, legit NFL throws every Saturday. And, um, you know, so I knew I could play at the next level, but I knew it would be a learning curve because, uh, the offense I was in was, you know, not a pro style offense. So I knew there would be, you know, just getting under center was going to be a change, you know, those kind of things. And, you know, the, the playbook in the NFL is much more complex than it was at Kentucky. So those, those were an adjust, those things were going to be an adjustment for me. And I knew that going into it, but uh, I never questioned whether I had the uh, physical ability to do it. Right. Has it been a little trip down memory lane now walking, watching uh, Baker Mayfield with the Cleveland Browns, a number one pick overall, and there's a guy ahead of him, you know, and everybody's saying, when is Baker going to come in and play? Does that take you a little bit back in time when you were in that same situation, number one pick overall for the Cleveland Browns, and uh, when were you going to be playing and when were they going to put you in? Oh, absolutely. You know, and I've been fortunate enough to uh, – the Browns hired me to call their preseason games yeah, this year, so I've been perfect. doing that. Yeah. And, uh, so I've got to be there and watch Baker firsthand and be a part of all that. And uh, it does remind me, you know, it was always, uh, you know, 19 years ago when I was in that same situation where uh, they, Ty Detmer was the quarterback yeah. uh, there at the time. And they were going to, you know, the plan was for me to sit that first year. And Ty was going to, you know, Ty was a 10 or 12 year veteran at the time. They were going to let him take the reins and let him go the first year. And then I would come in, you know, in spots, you know, here and there in certain games. But that went out the window about in the third quarter of the first game, and Coach looked at me and said, you're in, and I started in week two. And, you know, so plans change. You know, I know right now Tyrod Taylor is going to be the starter for, for Cleveland. He's a proven veteran in the league. You know, he's made a Pro Bowl. He took Buffalo to the playoffs last year. And he's certainly the right guy for for them right now. But Baker is the future. And, you know, man, I couldn't be more impressed with, with Mayfield. And, and uh, just getting a chance to stand on the field with him and watch him work and see how he throws the football and how he commands the huddle and how he rallies guys and his leadership skills. He's the real deal, and uh, they're doing a good job of, of surrounding him with talent. They've got a great wide receiver core and good running backs. They've got one of the highest-paid offensive lines in the in the league. So they're, they're putting the pieces in place for Baker to be successful. It's just a matter of uh, you know when they decide to put him in there. Hey, you talk about teams making the playoffs. People might forget that you took the Cleveland Browns to the playoffs mm-hmm. and then uh, had, unfortunately, uh, you broke your leg. You know, we are a sports medicine show here. Talk about how disappointing that had to be. You know, you coming in, high expectations. You finally get the team to the playoffs. You break your leg and aren't able to play in that playoff series. Tell us how disappointing that had to be. You know, it's so disappointing. When I look back at my NFL career, that was the that was a turning point for me. You know, because I was you know I was trending upwards. You know, the first four years and playing well. I was battling some injuries. I was on an expansion team with the Browns in '99, and you know, just a young team and all those kind of things. But you know, I was definitely trending upwards. Our team was trending up. Uh, we were a good young football team, and you know, like you said, we made the playoffs in 2002, and. Um, that's the only. That's the only time. Still, the, the new Browns since they came back in '99 have made the playoffs. Yeah. So I'm very proud of that. But mm-hmm. you know, the last game of the season, we played the Falcons, and we had to win to get in. And I think in the second or third quarter of that game, I, I get tackled and break my leg. And um, you know, we go on to end up. You know, we win that game, and I can't play in the playoff game. So it just, you know, and the, you know, backup came in and had a great game in, in the playoffs against Pittsburgh. And you know, it was just kind of a you know a controversy after that. But um, you know, it just. You know, so unfortunate that I'd battled through with that, you know, expansion yeah. team and got beat to death early in my career. And then, you know, finally get us to where, you know, we're making the playoffs and, you know, those kind of things. And then not in that game was just a very unfortunate thing for me. And, um, 
you know, just uh, that, that kind of turned my career right there. You know, was it just that broken leg, too? You had a broken thumb earlier in your career. Then you have the broken leg. I think you had two, ended up having to have two rotator cuff surgeries. So it really, really derailed your, your uh, career, given the fact that you were so incredible in uh, college and then had those injuries that you suffered in the NFL. It might have been a different story. But, man, it sounds like you've done great. You're now uh, doing uh, preseason broadcasting for the Cleveland Browns. Is it good to be back with that uh, Cleveland Browns family now that you're doing some of that? Yeah, it's great. You know, I'm so excited to be back. And, you know, it's been a long time since I've been around the organization. And, um, you know, they, they decided to bring me back and have me around the team. And it's just, um, it, it's been great. You know, there's been so much turnover since I was there from, you know, the general managers. They've had a ton of those. They've had, you know, a ton of head coaches. It's a different ownership than when I was there. So I really didn't have any ties to the organization anymore. But, you know, the, you know, fortunately, they brought me back. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be back with them. Well, hey, Tim, we're great to hear. It's always been fun to hear you on uh, doing the Browns. I always feel like I'm having a trip down to memory lane watching you sling the ball with Hal Mummy there at University of Kentucky. Hey, we do want to give a big shout-out to our good friend, Hal Mummy. Uh, this has been Tim Couch on Docs and Jocks. Tim, thanks so much for being on the show. We'll have to have you on again real soon. That sounds great, guys. I appreciate it. Thank right. you. Hey, we'll be right back with more Docs and Jocks after this short commercial break. Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show. My name is Dr. Dan, longtime sports medicine physician here at uh, Texas Sport and Spine, where a show comes out of the uh, Docs and Jocks radio studio deep in the heart of Texas, joined each week by my co-host, Ferris Potter. Ferris, man, I really enjoyed the interview with Tim Couch. I think Tim Couch gets a bad rap sometimes. He gets called uh, one of the uh, biggest busts in NFL history, draft history. I don't think that's really accurate to say that, and the reason is, he had some devastating injuries, had a thumb injury, a fractured leg after he took the Browns to the playoffs, which, by the way, he's the only quarterback in the long litany of quarterbacks that's been able to take the Cleveland Browns to the playoffs. And then he had two rotator cuff surgeries to his shoulder, which uh, ended his career. One of the greatest athletes ever in high school. That's not me saying that. That was a uh, ESPN poll they did, and he got, he got number six overall, scored 36 points per game in basketball, had one of the greatest uh, SEC careers ever as far as a passing quarterback under Hal Mummy. So I think Tim Couch gets a bad rap as far as being a bust. I think it was things beyond his control. What do you think, uh, Ferris, when you hear that statement? I mean, I really, really enjoyed that interview, by the way. Well, I think it's funny where you, you know, just because a guy got picked high and he doesn't become Joe Montana or, or Tom Brady, you decide he's a bust, you know. Um, you People forget the Browns were this great organization for a number of years, and then they left and went to Baltimore. The, he was actually becoming the number one pick of an expansion team yeah, right and you look at who he had and the guys he had um you know they were they were an expansion team and he did he let them to play off he did a few for a few certain things um it's hard though we talked about it in the first segment with the dallas cowboys they're going to be facing a couple injuries on their offensive line well if dak prescott doesn't have as good a year this year is he going to be a bust all of a sudden yeah i mean it, you're only as good as the guys you got around you in the nfl it's it's very rare the only guys i've ever seen at quarterback who who you could make the argument somewhat did it on their own are John Elway and Aaron Rodgers. Those are the only guys I've ever felt like did it all, almost all on their own. Um, everybody else, you got to have a good team around you. So, yeah, I think it's unfair. You know, the thing, too, is uh, I enjoy the comments he had about Baker Mayfield because I listened to um, last night a bunch of the different commentators, and they were all very, very high on Baker Mayfield. I think uh, if you listen to Terry Bradshaw, if you listen to – Howie Long, if you listen to now Tim Couch. The guys who have been around him, I think uh, Troy Aikman also is a big fan of his, as well as Joe Buck. The guys who have been around him and seen him play, they say that Baker Mayfield's the real deal. And when you hear that coming from Tim Couch, a guy who's been in that exact same boat, number one pick by the Cleveland Browns, you know, Heisman Trophy finalist, you know, Baker Mayfield actually wins the Heisman. 
had great illustrious uh, careers in college, and now you're going to the Browns, and you're expected to turn this franchise around. I mean, for him to say that, I think it's the real deal. I watched the game last night. A couple points, I think, uh, that I got out of the game. I've always heard that Baker Mayfield maybe doesn't have the arm strength that he needs to be uh, to translate his game into the NFL. If anybody watched that 15-yard out he threw on a pinpoint dime, I mean, that's a pretty strong arm to throw a ball that far downfield from you know basically midfield all the way over to the stripe on the out-of-bounds line. I think he's a very strong arm. And, uh, and then what I want to do to back that up is they looked at in the NFL combine the guys with the highest velocity of the football. Baker Mayfield threw it 60 miles an hour. The only guy in the rookie class that had a stronger arm as far as velocity goes is Josh Allen. Now, Sam Darnold didn't elect to throw, but so he can't include him. But Josh Allen threw 62. Otherwise, Baker Mayfield's number number two overall velocity-wise. What do you think about Baker Mayfield, Ferris, after seeing a short preseason couple games and uh, what we've heard from some of the experts? Well, you know, it'll be interesting to see what they do there. I was surprised they picked him just because I, I like Tyrod Taylor. I think he's good. I mean, Mayfield has a chance to be much better, right? Um, what I like about Mayfield is the kind of those intangibles. He's got that edge to him. I mean, we saw in college sometimes it got away from him, and he, he broke the law and did some of those things. But if he's matured, I like a guy with that kind of edge, that kind of attitude of I'm not sitting behind anybody. I mean, he transferred schools, you know, and yeah. said, if you're not going to let me play, I'm going somewhere else. I kind of like that, that little bit of selfishness, but also a team guy, but that edge like you're going to have to kill me to beat me kind of, you know, attitude. Yeah, right. So, I mean, I, I like that in a quarterback, and um, I, I think he could be really good. And he's got a better team around him than Tim Couchout, Tim Couchout back in 1999. Yeah, I mean, they've they've added some team. nice pieces, you know. They've, right. They've added some nice pieces. And my second point of that uh, that I saw from those, that game last night was Tyrod Taylor. And, by the way, there's a big controversy, Tyrod or Tyrod. I don't know which it is. I think he said, I'm going to call it, go ahead and call me Tyrod for the rest of the year because I, I don't want to hear the question one more time. So, but Tyrod, I say Tyrod. Is it Tyrod? Do I think it's actually Tyrod? Tyrod. I think that's how his family oh, okay. says it. But he's so sick of answering the question that we want some people call him the Tyrod because that's the way everybody does it. So uh, he had a uh, wrist injury if you're watching that game last night. And so x-rays have been negative. He's ruled out a fracture. I was a little bit surprised that Hugh Jackson let him come back in. If you've been watching the uh, hard knocks on Cleveland Browns, Hugh Jackson as a head coach has basically taken up for giving his players rest, letting veterans, you know, get their rest, not have to play. In fact – you know, some of the coaches, some of the assistant coaches have said, hey, we've got to get our reps in with these guys because we only have a short period of time. I don't care if they're veterans or not. We've got to get them out here and get this playbook down. And Hugh Jackson has been pretty staunch about it. i I, I got to have my players ready for the season. I can't have them injured. I can't have them tired. And I want them basically being taken care of. That said, last night Tyrod Taylor goes down with that wrist injury and he puts you back in the game. I was a little bit shocked that he put him back in, but – uh, I don't. I don't know the reasoning exactly why he did that, but maybe the the word, the the phrase that has been used is he was hurt, not injured. Really, what does that mean? I, I you and I speak about how you can play with some pain if you're not really injured. You can go back out and play. But uh, I was surprised he put him back in last night. Were you surprised to see him after he had that wrist injury come trucking back out there? Um, I think Hugh Jackson is like. I got two guys, and if one of them gets hurt, I'll just go to the other guy. So <laughs> yeah. let's roll them out there. Yeah. It's like I don't want to say he's disposable, but he's—they're both kind of—he's kind of disposable. When you look, I mean, come on. I like Tyrod, Tyrod, whatever you call him, Taylor. I like him a lot. He took the Buffalo Bills to the playoffs, but you don't go out and draft Baker Mayfield to sit on the bench. No. You just don't. Even and if you're going to draft him to sit on the bench. It's behind like an Aaron Rodgers or a Tom Brady. You don't you don't draft a guy and say, oh, well, let's have Tyrod Taylor teach him how to be a pro quarterback because Tyrod Taylor's still learning. Yeah, you know. So I think Tyrod Taylor is your backup quarterback. 
And if he, if he's going to be, just start Baker Mayfield. Right. Well, you know, this is the exact thing we asked Tim Couch in our interview. In fact, if you missed that interview with Tim Couch here on Docs and Josh, you can always go back and listen to any of our interviews anytime, anywhere by going to docsandjocks.com, D-O-X-N-J-O-X.com. Hit the listen button and you can listen to any of those interviews. But he said that when he came up, Ty Detmer was in front of him. I had forgotten that, that he didn't start right off the bat with the Cleveland Browns. Ty Detmer yeah. started the first two games, got in a little bit of trouble, boom. Then you got you got uh, Tim Couch coming in. It's very, very familiar sounding now with, I think, Tyrod Taylor from now. I, I bet 20 years from now we won't remember that Tyrod Taylor was on the team when Baker Mayfield came up and uh, eventually got the start. Yeah, you, you might be right. I mean, we're talking about arm strength. I don't know if you saw this because, you know, I'm a – I grew up in Kansas City, so I'm a Chiefs fan, but then I, I don't like Andy Reid, so I kind of said I've, I've worn off the Chiefs. <laughs> that was a nice But I don't know if you it. saw a guy from Texas, uh, Pat Mahomes, Mahomes, yes. Mahomes. Oh, my goodness. Threw a 60-yard hey. touchdown pass uh, to Tarek Hill. Um, he's got some arm strength, that guy. And I think Andy Reid, I'm not a fan, but I think he might loosen up the playbook a little bit with Mahomes. Hey, actually, because I'm from Texas and I love Pat uh, Patrick Mahomes so much, he threw it from the 25, and it landed. They caught it on the 5. Everyone calls it 60. That's 70. Do the math. Yeah. It's 70 in the air, and the guy was flat-footed. I mean, just go out in your backyard sometime and see how far you can throw the ball if you're like an average Joe like me. I mean, if you could, if you could throw the ball over 50, you're above average in the human race. Throw it 70 yards in the air, flat-footed. Oh, and by the way, Incredibly accurate. It was on. It was online, and he caught it and yeah. let him a little bit. Incredible on throw. Pace. Oh, that was great. Yeah. Great so throw. you know, it's interesting. That is the interesting thing about the NFL. I mean, we see how injuries let, let guys have a chance, and we saw Aaron Rodgers go down, and Hundley had a chance and couldn't perform. You know, and I think that showed less about how good Hundley is and more about how bad uh, the the Packers really are offensively and how yeah. Aaron Rodgers makes them look great. You know, um, but there's a lot of there's a lot of young quarterbacks going to get a chance. I mean, Mahomes in Kansas City, Baker Mayfield, we both think is going to get his shot. I mean, you got to start uh, Sam up in uh, for the Jets, right? Out in Arizona, they're talking about Josh uh, Rosen. Like, why why not start him? Although you did go out um, and get uh, the guy from um, the Vikings, uh, Bradford, but it's like now you got Rosen. I mean, there's some we might see in a little bit of changing of the guard or. We might see a bunch of young guys who came out highly touted and they just can't perform in the NFL. We'll, we'll see. By the way, Rosen, I don't think he sits well being a backup quarterback. Just a little bit I've met of him or listened to him speak. This is a guy who wants to be on the field now, and he wants to prove that he should have been a higher-round draft pick or, or, in his mind, the number one draft pick overall. He really thinks he should have been the guy, the man, and he wants to prove everybody wrong who passed him over. So this is a guy I don't see him sitting behind. You know, you always hear the interviews of, yeah, I'm just trying to learn from the guy ahead of me. I'm trying to wait my turn. I don't see Rosen being that guy. Anybody who's dropping F-bombs on his post-NFL draft uh, interview probably is a guy that's uh, pretty fiery and wants to get out there and play. Yeah, I, you might be right. Um, he does not seem like that kind of guy, which is, I guess, good and bad. I just said I like the fact that Baker Mayfield's got a bit of an edge, but you got to be able to to control it a little bit and uh, – Rosen didn't in that first interview, yeah. uh, but we'll wait and see. You know, we'll see how good these guys are. It's, I mean, Tim Couch even said it. It's different, you know, being in college and pro. He was always confident his skill level would translate, but he didn't play in a pro set offense. And so, you know, there were some questions on that. But you know, going back to your original question, I mean, gosh, the guy's not anybody who plays for what seven, eight years in the NFL. Pe- people forget, like they're like, oh, that guy's horrible. He's in the NFL. Yeah, I exactly. Mean, come on. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, no doubt about it. So it's going to be fun to see because this is a fun group of uh, quarterbacks that came out this year. But Josh Rosen uh, is a guy that I think uh, hopefully will uh, be starting for Arizona because I don't see Sam Bradford leading that team long term. How many more years, by the way? Uh, what's the gut feeling out in Arizona right now? The greatest wide receiver of all time, in my opinion, Larry Fitzgerald, who I love that guy. Well, how long? How many more years do you think he has in the uh, in the career? Well, he's saying year by year, right? Um, gosh, he's, he takes such good care of himself, and he's in such good shape. I honestly think that Larry could play another five, six, seven years. Such, I mean, he's, he's, he's that healthy, you know? Um, I just think he might not want to anymore. He's 34, 35 years old. Um, I, look, I personally think, Larry, if I was his agent, I would be begging him to go free agent and play with Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady or somebody, because you look at that. What was that say? Like he's caught passes from like touchdown passes from like 21 different quarterbacks. I mean, I think had he been at like a place like that for extended period of time, he would be considered the greatest. I mean, he'd be in the shortlist for the greatest receivers of all time. I mean, am I crazy? No, no, I don't think you're crazy at all. That guy's a, if if you can be a wide receiver that helps take the Arizona Cardinals to the Super Bowl and nearly win it on his amazing catch and run that he had from Kurt Warner, you know, against Pittsburgh Steelers, put us up late, unfortunately, with two thirty seconds or two minutes and thirty seconds left with uh, Ben Roethlisberger to have the ball. But we almost won it with Kurt Warner and Larry Fitzgerald. So, yeah, I think that alone, man, when you can get the Arizona Cardinals into the Super Bowl with a chance to win it people saying this is legit remember they barely barely squeaked into the playoffs that year in fact chris collinsworth said that is the worst team worst playoff team in the history of the nfl when the cardinals made the playoffs that year that they took it all the way to the super bowl caught fire yeah caught fire at the right time so anyway it's exciting times uh, in the nfl right now man i enjoy watching the preseason just kind of get to see some of these uh, rookie quarterbacks and some of these uh, rookie running backs doing their thing. So always a good time in the NFL. Hey, we'll be right back with more of your Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show. Hey, don't forget, you can always follow us on iTunes, Instagram, Facebook. We put some of my uh, medical quotes from the week in there, and you can uh, follow us there as well, man. Great to have you be part of our show. We'll be right back. Remember, we're listening to our SB Nation nationally syndicated show right now on radio. You can listen to us anytime, anywhere by going to iTunes podcast, Docs and Jocks. We'll be right back. One characteristic that is almost always seen in every great athlete is discipline. But this discipline is not only evident in the areas of practicing and working out. Great athletes must also practice discipline in food and drink choices, sleep habits, time management, and in general life choices. Some athletes seem to be born with natural bent towards self-discipline. But those who do not feel discipline comes easy or natural can learn skills to aid them in this area. Coach John Harba has described this accurately by saying, Discipline is not a light switch. Discipline is a way of life. Here at the Edge Mental Strength Training, we work with athletes to learn how to incorporate more discipline into their lives to reach their desired goals and establish a more consistent lifestyle. If you or an athlete you know would like to learn more about how to become more disciplined, you can reach us by clicking on our link at docsandjocks.com. This has been your Mental Strength Minute. Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show. My name is Dr. Dan, longtime sports medicine physician with Tech Sport and Spine, joined each week by my co-host, sports broadcaster, Ferris Potter. Hey, Ferris, I thought uh, you had a couple questions for me in the uh, off-air off segment there. Ask me those questions on air, and I'll give you my opinion. Yeah, so I know you're a Cardinals fan. I, I have him on my fantasy team. Marcelo Zuna, he goes on the 10-day DL. Uh, the day after he hits a home run, it says, well, he's been battling shoulder soreness all year, and so he's just he's got inflammation in his shoulder. Like, are these guys like wimps now? I mean, they're in the middle of a pennant race, and he's taking 10 days off because his shoulder hurts. You know, I don't know anything about Marcelo Zuna, but I can just tell you, 
if I was where the Cardinals are right now, they they literally day to day go from out of being the wild card race to being the head right. of the wild card race. There's a half a game separating like four teams right now in the wild card race. If I could play baseball at all, I would be out there swinging a bat, playing. And Ozuna's been playing good. He's one of those guys that's kind of caught fire, which is uh, what the Cardinals have needed in that spot. That's why they went out and got him. So I was really shocked because he hits a home run. He's playing well. He's hitting high average. He's barreling up everything. And then I saw him go on the DL. I'm like, I know he's had this injury because you've seen him throwing funky all year long. Right. You know, so why now? I don't know if he's not able to sleep at nighttime. They looked at a study that found – when most people will decide to go see a doctor for a shoulder injury, and they found that, that most of the time it was when you're unable to sleep through the night because your shoulder pain is so bad. And that may be where he's at. Maybe he just reached a point where he's like, man, I can't deal with this anymore. My shoulder's killing me, and i got to just take some time off. But that said, to pick this time of the year where every game matters, oh, just killer. Yeah. Fierce hey, can question. I ask you one yeah, more question? How come every injury in sports – is a four- to six-week timeline, except for ACL. Well, it kind of got started because uh, most fractures heal in four to six weeks. Six weeks is the average. So as a doctor, there really is no magic number. Everybody's a little bit different. But fractures typically heal at about six weeks, no matter what. So that's how that traditionally got started, the four- to six-week window. So if you break your wrist, hey, it's four to six weeks. If you, you know, break your uh, fibula, four to six weeks. Ankle fracture, I mean, uh, ankle sprain, four to six weeks. It's, it's, just that, that's all, it's always four to six weeks. And oh, by the way, the 10-day DL just means you can't come back for 10 days. It doesn't right. mean you're going to be back in 10 days. Aaron Judge has proved that. Deal they can put you on. Hey, if you're only catching our first segment here and want to catch our entire show, go to docsandjocks.com, D-O-X-N-J-O-X.com. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show. Hey, great to join us. You're joining us in our second hour here, man. We love having you be part of our Sports Medicine Radio Show. Myself, Dr. Dan, longtime sports medicine physician, as well as my co-host, Ferris Potter. Man, if you missed our first segment, uh, first hour, we uh, interviewed Tim Couch, former Cleveland Brown number one overall pick, and uh, as well as uh, Heisman Trophy finalist and one of the greatest high school athletes ever. Man, you can go back and listen to that segment anytime, anywhere by going to docsandjocks.com or a D-O-X-N-J-O-X, Docs and Jocks iTunes podcast. Hey, this hour we're going to have on Mike Ryan. He's the CEO of Fastball USA. He is one of the premier hitting experts in the country. We'll be talking about launch angles, uh, exit velocity off of bats. He swears he can get a kid swinging the bat 100 miles an hour. So uh, we'll be talking all that more with Mike Ryan. Ferris and I are huge baseball fans. It'll be fun talking that uh, baseball and more. Hey, Ferris, so one of the things we were talking about before the uh, segment uh, was in and how many injuries there's been in baseball and guys missing. One of the big studies came out that looks at uh, the number of ACL ruptures this year. And so far this year in the NFL, in the NFL, the number of ACL ruptures, anterior cruciate ligament, has been 25. And so they also listed it by teams. And the number one team with the most ACL injuries this year has been, the. Uh, I'm sorry, altogether, this is since 2015, including this year's totals, the San Diego Chargers, now the uh, L.A. Chargers, they had 16. The second, Ferris, is out in your neck of the woods, out in Arizona, the Arizona Cardinals have had 14, the most ACL ruptures since they started doing this stat back in uh, 2013. The lowest has been uh, the Oakland Raiders, and the Dallas Cowboys are extremely low with six. The Cowboys have six, and the Oakland Raiders have three. Does it surprise you the bad teams have more ACL injuries? And uh, I guess the Oakland Raiders wouldn't be considered a good team necessarily, but what is what? Did yeah, you- well, I mean, not all ACL injuries are the same. When Derek Carr gets one, that's a lot worse than when you know yeah, your third, third string <laughs> yeah. wide receiver. But 
I mean, there's really no rhyme or reason, though, right? I mean, no. it's kind of just the luck of the draw on that stuff, right? Unless you start seeing a trend or for some reason, you know, if you start saying, wow, the same team, the same staff, same medical staff has more rotator cuff injuries in baseball or more ACL injuries in football, then you start wondering, could it be something they're doing in their training? But, yeah, no, I don't think there's much rhyme or reason why people have that. I just thought it was an interesting study that there's been 25 already this year and then looking since 2013, the total, the Chargers have had 16 as a team, which is the most. But, yeah, the the, the uh, Arizona Cardinals have had a lot. I remember the big one for them was obviously uh, the Honey Badger, man. He had a big one that cut him, ended up uh, taking him away from Arizona. So, hey, when we come back, we're going to forget we're going to be having on Mike Ryan. Mike is one of the uh, premier hitting experts. So if you have a young son and maybe Little League, you select baseball or you want to find out about hitting in general, stay with us here on Docs and Josh. We'll have all that and more when we come back after the short commercial break. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show. My name is Dr. Dan, coming to you from inside Docs and Jocks radio studios, deep in the heart of Texas, along with my co-host, Ferris Potter. And Ferris, uh, man, I'm looking forward to our interview coming up after this uh, short segment with uh, Mike Ryan, one of the hitting premier uh, experts in all the countries as far as uh, exit velocity, launch angle. You and I got a lot of questions for him as far as uh, how the game has changed. We're now doing all these... Uh, um, they're not called, uh, what are they, all the metrics? The Sabre metrics now are all in. So what's your goal? Yeah, the advanced metrics that advanced, the MLB yeah. finally started uh, showing everybody a few years back have kind of changed the game a bit. Oh, definitely. You know, you see guys like Cody Bellinger now with launch angles, like looks like he's swinging from his shoes to his head. So, yeah, it's changed it a ton as far as how these guys are swinging it. So it'd be interesting talking to Mike Ryan. Hey, one of the uh, stories I saw that came out, and, and, and this goes along with, uh, remember, we have uh, the Edge Mental Strength uh, is our uh, sports psychology department here with what we do outside of the Forge Abilene where we're at and and uh, lovely Miss Tracy Mutton who brought your mental minute in the first hour she runs that she sent me this story about Brett Cecil and you may not be aware of him Ferris he's a pitcher a left-handed uh, relief pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals he's bounced around a little bit but for the Cardinals they went out and spent quite a bit of money to bring in this lefty specialist in the beginning of the year he was really really struggling like he was uh, just every time he came in he was super wild and he looked like he was fidgety and anxious on the mound and he just didn't look like himself they kept trying to bring him in in tight situations and he was getting rocked every time he came in or he was so wild or hitting batters it just just couldn't get the job done he now releases a story and uh, really he was dealing with a lot of anxiety and it started after his uh, his parents died his father first passed away uh, this year, and then shortly thereafter, his uh, I believe it was his mother, mother-in-law, then has pneumonia, and he's dealing with that uh, medical issue. At the same time, he under has an injury that he's dealing with, and he kind of loses his confidence, and he loses his uh, overall ability to take that away when he's pitching. A lot of times, people talk about being in the zone, or you know, you know, just being able to focus when you're on the mound, when you're on a field. Suddenly, all that goes away. But there are times, I believe, that certain circumstances in life get bigger than your ability to block him out. And that's what happened at Brett Cecil. That's what he was saying happened. And he started dealing with a sports psychologist like what we have here at the Edge of Mental Strength. By the way, if you ever want to do a free evaluation and find out uh, your, how you deal with anxiety or pressure, uh, those kind of things, you can go to uh, our website, docsandjocks.com. You'll see the Edge Mental Strength icon pop up. Just click on that. It'll take you to a free evaluation. You fill that out. Our sports, uh, our certified certification in sports psychologist, uh, Tracy Mutton, will give you uh, the uh, evaluation back and find out how you deal with it. But uh, Chuck Cecil, or I'm sorry, Brett Cecil did this uh, sports psychologist training with the St. Louis Cardinals and found that if he was able to write down what he was feeling, the anxiety feelings he was feeling during a day, in other words, 
these are the emotions I'm having, this is what I'm feeling, this is what I'm going through right now. Something right. about the process of writing it down for him, he was then able to leave that when he went to the mound and he was able to focus. He almost just like needed an outlet for it, if that makes sense. But he came back, and since he's been back with the Cardinals, and they've had a resurgence. Oh, my gosh, the Cardinals have been playing lights-out baseball. They're like, I think they're 23-11 and 11 since the new manager took over Mike Schilt for Mike Matheny. And one of the big resurgent um, players has been Brett Cecil, along with Matt Carpenter and Ozuna, who's now out. But they've had a crazy, crazy uh, trend back up to the top. And uh, Brett Cecil says that his ability to deal with anxiety off the field allowed him to become a great player on the field again. So pretty cool when you hear those stories of guys who are coming back from big issues like parents dying, losing family members, those kind of things. Yeah, I mean, I think it highlights what we talk about all the time and what uh, Tracy Munton talks about the, at the, uh, you know, the, at the edge is that, you know, you got to put yourself in a position to perform how you can perform. I mean, Brett Cecil obviously had the ability but something was hindering him. Sometimes it's an injury, you know, that you deal with, but sometimes it's a mental injury. You know, yeah. if your mind's, we all do it. If your mind's somewhere else and you can't commit a hundred percent to something, you're not going to be as good. Now in my job, that might not be a big deal in your job. That could be a big deal. If you're a surgeon operating, that's a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if you're a baseball player and you have a, you know, you have to place the pitch on the outside corner of the plate, that can be a big deal. And so, yeah, I think it's great that he went and talked to that person and something that simple of, hey, just write it down. And when you close that book, you walk away and you forget about it. And it just it triggered with him. But we talk about it all the time man. these guys focus for so long about the physical aspect and get themselves that position. And sometimes it's the mental that just drives them out of the game. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You're, it's very true. You can't have 14 things going on in your head and do a good job of whatever you're at. I, I sometimes do procedures that are very intricate. And I have to be around patients, spinal cords, those, those kind of things. And in my mind, I always use uh, – remember the uh, Kevin Costner um, – oh, was it a love of the game, I think it was, where he used love the, of the phrase, game, yeah. clear the mechanism. <laughs> and so mechanism, right before yeah. I'll start a procedure sometimes, and I'll have 18 things going on that happened while I was coming to work or people have been bombarding me with questions, and I'll stop. And I'll say, okay, clear the mechanism. I only have one thing going on right now, and that's taking care of this patient with this procedure – I, I have to do everything right. And then just, poof, I kind of just forget everything else. And then, you know, later on it all comes back. But during that time frame, just like a big Major League Baseball player, you have to be in the moment. That's what Brett Cecil had a hard time doing. So do you – have you studied this or is this – you can just give me your opinion. or What do you think of these like – because everybody has it, right? I'll be calling a ball game and I'll notice myself wandering. And I'll have to do kind of the same thing. Okay, focus. You know, because I'm mm-hmm. – you know, something's wandering. You're thinking something or it's a boring thing or whatever. What do you think about these um, these these supplements or these things you can take like brain quickener? I mean, yeah. we know it's been proven like, hey, the MCT and some coconut oil can help help your brain focus a little better. So people are doing ax- extracts of that. The whole bulletproof coffee kind of movement is mm-hmm. around that. Yeah. I mean, do you, you buy into this stuff? Do you think it's safe? What are your thoughts about some of those supplements that kind of help? Help your brain focus better. Well, I definitely think there's a place for good triglycerides, and that's what MCT really is. You know, it's that the medium chain triglycerides. It's been shown that, remember, your brain is basically made out of a triglyceride. That's, that's what, what neurons have in them. So you have to give them the building blocks to be able to fully function, and that's what you're doing. Same thing after you exercise really, really hard. You break down muscle, so you want to give them the building blocks, amino acids, or they come in forms of protein. You want to give your body those building blocks so that when they start putting it back together, they can work. So if I take all your – if I give you a super, super low – uh, triglyceride diet, especially if you're a young child or a young growing adolescent, that brain still forming neuroplasticity we talk about. I think there's a time and a place and definitely 
good things happen when you give the body good building blocks. So just like Jill Lane, who's our nutritionist, and by the way, you can hear Jill Lane if you go to docsandjocks.com, talk about some great interviews she's done about nutrition. But she's talking about taking good foods, you know, whether it be proteins, whether it be fats, whether it be, you know, carbohydrates, you need those good, clean building blocks putting your body through real foods that allow you to focus and be at your best in those moments. The problem comes into, Ferris, I think, is people try and do a couple things. One, they, they either shortcut the system. They say, okay, maybe I'm not eating a good diet. And how I can make up for that is I'll take a supplement that someone says has what is in it instead of eating a good diet. So I think you should first focus fully on trying to figure out with you and your nutritionist or your family physician, uh, good friends who love to read about nutrition, figure out how it is for you to eat a good diet. Second, then if you need something on top of that, we have a whole segment we did with Jolaine talking about supplements, then you supplement. And then my other point is, I think some people will read that if medium chain triglycerides are good for you and that you need to supplement with those, if a little bit is a little good, a whole lot is a whole lot of good. So what they do is they tend to go overboard. So if Bulletproof Coffee, which tries to give you good fats, that's what good fats are. They give you real butter and they give you coconut oil and those kind of things. If that if that's your that's where you're getting your good, you know, MCTs and your good triglycerides, your good fats, then you probably don't need to be loading up all day long on those things, right? Like hammering yourself with them, which I think some people go overboard on them. So you got to be real careful. Remember, if you get too many good fats, even you can give yourself things like pancreatitis, too, where your pancreas can now cannot deal with all that ex- excessive fat around you and give yourself problems. So. Yes, there is a definite place for good fats, like what you're talking about. There is a great place for good proteins, definitely a good place for all those things, but you have to be really, really careful and not overdo it. Does that make sense, Ferris, here in the last 30 seconds? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so get a great diet. Find out what that is for you with a great nutritionist, a great family doctor, whoever it is, your sports medicine doctor. And then on top of that, if you need supplements, figure out what supplements you know you might need that you might be lacking your diet if those are needed. And then, two, just make sure you don't go overboard on any of those. I see people drinking protein shakes like they're like every workout. They do like before, after. They'll do it four times a day. I'm like, your body can't right. use all that, man. So figure out what is good and, uh, and don't be excessive on it as well. Hey, when we come back, we'll be interviewing CEO of Fastball USA, Mike Ryan, here on Docs and Jocks, talking all things hitting. If you got a young little leaguer, youth player, a guy that wants to make the next level in baseball, this is the interview you don't want to miss here on Docs and Jocks. We'll be right back with your Sports Medicine Radio Show. Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show. My name is Dr. Dan, longtime sports medicine physician. Talk about what's going on in the sports medicine world. Uh, here with my co-host, Ferris Potter, each week. Remember, if you want to find out more about our show, you can go to docsandjocks.com, D-O-X-N-J-O-X.com. Find out about our backgrounds and what we do here each week and what our day jobs are. And, uh, Ferris, we're very excited and very honored to have on a uh, guest who's been on previously, but I thought he did such a great job. I'd love to have him on again, talk more about baseball, more about hitting specifically. We have on CEO of Fastball USA, Mike Ryan. He's considered one of the premier hitting instructors in the United States. Uh, Mike, thanks for being on the show. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on, guys. So first of all, for our listening audience who maybe didn't hear your previous interview you did with us, tell us uh, kind of your philosophy at Fastball USA. What are you doing with young hitters, and how are you trying to develop them to make the most of their skills? Well, the big thing that we specialize in is is hitting and hitting with power specifically. Uh, it's proven facts that the harder you're hitting the ball, 
the better flight you're hitting the ball with, the chances of having success are greatly increased. And we've really taken on uh, specializing in, in improving speed and power uh, with our hitters, uh, really of all age levels. Yeah, I saw that you have this uh, new book. It's called Creating the 100-Mile-An-Hour Hitter. You released it back in 2015. But you, can you really – do you really create guys who can swing to about 100 miles an hour? Because that's incredibly uh, a great swing if they're able to do that. Yes, yes. And what I always tell our students is it doesn't matter where you start. It only matters where you finish. So creating a 100-mile-an-hour hitter is definitely a process. It's not an overnight yes, thing. exactly. Uh, but, but to get it done – uh, I believe every guy we work with has the ability to one day hit it 100 miles an hour. It's just a matter of uh, the processes for each guy may be a little different. And, and of course, it, it takes a little bit longer, but it's, uh, it's definitely something worth do, uh, that can be happening uh, as well as it, it's what's going to need, be needed to hit a home run in Major League Baseball. Yeah, exactly. Fairs? Hey, Mike, so it's not a one-size-fits-all, uh, probably, because you just mentioned some guys need different things, but are there some common denominators you see in kids when a kid comes in hitting, you know, 80 or something, you think, oh, yeah, here's a few key things that'll just take him to 90 right away or something like that? Well, I, I can tell you this. Everything starts with mindset. A lot of guys that we work with, we notice that um, a lot of what they're doing is actually uh, pretty close, uh, but they haven't trained with the mindset of speed, power, and precision combined. I think it's natural when hitters fail, uh, they don't barrel up a ball, they swing and miss. It's natural to slow down. What our uh, program is really doing is challenging guys to have power and precision at the same time without getting discouraged by mishitting a ball. It's, it's a process through training. Yeah, you know, it's amazing that uh, we uh, deal here with – we've talked a lot with Ron Wolforth and pitching as well. A lot of the same philosophies that is in hitting also apply to throwing a baseball as well. You know, the rotational explosion, being precise but yet powerful, they kind of overlap in a baseball player between throwing and hitting. Do you find a lot of similarities? Yeah, not only do I find a lot of similarities, I accidentally found, because we did so many measurements, is that we find that over 80% of the guys we test actually throw – and hit with a very similar velocity level. Huh. Uh, matter, matter of fact, within about three miles an hour. So when I see a hitter, say, for example, uh, he might be throwing at 90 miles an hour, but he's only hitting at 78 to 80, that's a disconnect in our world. So we use it as part of our evaluation process is to understand that the hitting and throwing velocity should be very similar. Wow, that's amazing. And, you know, we see some of these numbers coming out from guys like uh, Giancarlo Stanton, uh, Aaron Judge. I think uh, Stanton now has seven of the top or six of the seven top uh, velos on, on swinging. I think he just hit one 121 miles an hour, something like that. <laughs> is, it, is, is it amazing you what guys are now doing in the big leagues? I think you're a big part of that because guys like you who are, are the elite hitting instructors are now teaching guys a way to hit that now is being translated into the big leagues after we've seen a few years, and we're seeing numbers that we've never seen before ever on the planet, both in throwing and hitting. I think you're a big part of that. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. And, and I think here's the big thing. Players now have objective data that proves, for example, more exit velocity gives them a greater chance of getting hits. Uh, better launch angle gives them better chances of hitting a home run. So it's not theory anymore, and I think that's critical because now you're going to get more buy-in from the, not just a major league player, but a high school player, a college player, and there's got to be buy-in. They have to understand the why before what they're doing, and it's almost like they're getting the answers of a test before taking the test. Is And, and we talk about the, the combination of 95-mile-per-hour plus exit velocity at a launch angle between 20 and 30 degrees 
is oftentimes resulting in a home run. Wow, that's so cool. So cool. Fares? So, so Mike, you mentioned it a little bit there. Well, where would you say we're at with people accepting that? I mean, there, we still hear some of the old timers say, oh, I'm tired of all these advanced metrics and all these things. Guys can hit or they can't hit, that type of stuff. Where do you think we're at? Um, have we crossed the threshold where the majority of folks making the decisions at the higher levels are embracing all these advanced metrics? I think at the higher level, they're embracing the advanced metrics. I think what I'm dealing with personally is when you get a high school player that may be, uh, may be undersized right now, there's, there's a little bit of pullback in terms of, well, that guy can't hit for power. Uh, mm. And what I'd like to turn around on everybody out there is no matter how uh, strong or weak your kid is, he could drive balls into the outfield. And the one thing I know is simple math. There's only three guys in the outfield. There's six in the infield. So if I get better at driving balls into the outfield, <laughs> a even a high school hitter has got a better chance of getting more hits and actually more doubles. I have never. That's I've awesome. been a baseball player That's my whole awesome. life, Mike. I played baseball my whole life. Grew up I'm a college baseball player. My kids plays baseball. My parents, my brothers. I never thought of there's just the three guys in the outfield. And there's six on the infield. That's the first time I've ever heard that. <laughs> like that's so obvious, <laughs> man. Duh. I know. Oh God, Crazy. I'm, I'm an idiot. <laughs> so hey, when you see guys like uh, Altuve doing the things that he does that he does right now, I mean, obviously he's an MVP, playing great. And then you see his uh, saber metrics, where he happens to be a guy that has great launch angle, happens to be a guy that has great exit velocity. That has to reinforce to your students, hey, not only am what I'm saying, is, is it what I'm saying, but here's a guy that does it and these numbers match up. It, it, like you said, it's no longer theory. The guys like Altuve are proving it. Yes, and, and that's what I think right, that makes baseball such an incredible sport is you can get a guy like Altuve having the success that he's had. Uh, and really, and if you follow his success, part of that – is that he is he is actually the number of hits that he hits with a good launch angle between 10 and 30 degrees has gone up, and along the way his statistics have improved at the same time. Uh, a guy that's now in Chicago, Daniel Murphy, had that same thing happen to him. When he started hitting more balls into the outfield with authority, his power numbers went up, his batting average went up. So it goes back to they understand the answers to the test, and now they're just trying to figure out what – tricks them into that success, and Altuve is a great example of that. You know, I love Harold Riddles on uh, Major League Baseball Network. He said uh, I kept, they kept telling me minor leagues, hit the ball on the ground because I was fast. Then I get to the big leagues, I realize that a big league arm could throw me out no matter how hard I hit it and no matter where I hit it on the infield. But if I hit a line drive in the outfield, it was a base hit. He said I started getting the ball up. That was a great one. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Hey, one hey, of the knocks you get with uh, now, you know, teaching the new launch angle and high bat velocity, it seems like – You'll hear people say, oh, yeah, but it causes a lot of strikeouts. Now all you see is a home run or a strikeout. But I don't think necessarily that guys hitting with launch angle and high velocity equal strikeouts. I do think the pitchers have also figured out a lot with uh, how to throw the ball, how to throw it harder. And part of that you see with the strikeouts is just because the pitching is getting better as well. Yeah, it's, it's the pitchers are starting to learn that they got to pitch up in the strike zone uh, to counteract hitters uh, trying to launch the ball in the air. Uh, however, what you bring up is something that we've been uh, really focusing on of late is I believe that, for example, if you're a high school hitter, you cannot be a high swing and miss guy, even if you're working on driving more balls in the outfield, because then college coaches and pro scouts aren't going to see you as a success at the next level. So you've got to be able to be a low swing and miss guy at the level you're currently playing at and also be able to drive balls in the outfield. And that And that is the challenge, and that's something that – uh, we're working on a lot right now, and we're seeing a lot less swing and miss rate from our guys 
and and at the same time generating power, which which I think that's the player of the future uh, that's going to happen. You're going to see guys swinging and missing less because they're going to have a more adjustable swing. Exactly. Hey, Mike, when, you know, we, we've got the metrics now to show us, hey, this guy hit a home run, and now we know what his launch angle, his exit velo, all this stuff was, so we can kind of train to that. Is this a different way of swinging the bat, though, than back in – I mean, I remember Ted Williams kind of had a bit of an upswing. I mean, these guys, have they always been the good hitters, always been kind of doing it this way? It's just we didn't have a way of measuring it because, to Dr. Dan's point, you know, when I grew up, it was, it was always like, oh, swing down on the ball, swing down, you know, that type of thing. Yeah, well, I think the first thing is this. Everybody's different in what they think about. So if you yeah. talk up, talk to some of these guys, some of these guys are actually thinking about swinging down on the ball, but they're not actually swinging down on the ball. Uh, mm. Mike Schmidt talks about he got out of the biggest slump of his career by going up to the plate thinking about swinging down on the ball. Um, so what you actually think about and what actually happens don't always match up. So mm. we talk about personalizing uh, the goal or intent for each guy. And other guys like Josh Donaldson will talk about, hey, he's definitely trying to hit the ball in the air. So, um, you know, look at it like this. If you're trying to get a guy to hit the ball in the air and he's constantly under the ball or in swinging and missing under the ball and popping balls up, that's a guy that doesn't need to hear that because he's probably pretty good at it already. So it depends on the individual, and you got a personalized approach to the individual. Man, we did a lesson with Lance Berkman. My son's a switch hitter, and we were working with Lance down in Houston, and Lance said, uh, I think down at, about swinging down at the ball. And then he walked over to a poster of him hitting a home run, one of his most famous home runs. And he goes, but look, I'm actually swinging up at it. So he goes, I think down, but I'm actually, in my, when I watch my own videos, I'm swinging up. So even the great ones who say swing down at it, oftentimes, like you said, they're really swinging up at it. Hey, Mike, here in our last minute or so, give us, uh, if our listening audience wants to come train with you or has their young son or, or daughter that wants to come train with you on hitting, how do they do so? Uh, we have two websites. One is uh, fastballusa.com, and we also have another website. It's called explosivehittingcamps.com, and we have two camps coming up, one in November and one in December, uh, where people can get that information online and join us in person uh, here in the Chicago area. And you've also authored several books, and I think you have a video system as well, right? Yeah, uh, the book is Creating the 100-Mile-An-Hour Hitter, which is on Amazon. And then we just recently, this spring, came out with Explosive Hitting 3.0, uh, and really, which is a combination of, of getting guys to hit with power and also to hit with precision. Well, Mike, we want to say thank you for coming on, Docs and Jocks. I always think it's great to talk to those minds that are out on the cutting edge of any sport, and I feel like you're that with the uh, hitting instruction. So, hey, go out and find uh, Mike's book, Creating the 100-Mile-An-Hour Hitter and Explosive Hitting 3.0, and uh, make that part of your arsenal. Hey, Mike, thanks for being on. I want to have you on again real soon. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. Hey, we'll be right back with more Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show after this short commercial break. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show. Great to have you join us today. Remember, you can listen to our iTunes podcast as well as uh, our radio show. If you don't get it in your radio listening area, you can go to Docs and Jocks, D-O-X-N-J-O-X, our iTunes podcast. Hey, we just got done eating a great firehouse uh uh, sub and uh, I had a under 500 salad. I want to say thank you for our great friend Chad Fulkerson for uh, providing our lunch here for our staff uh, inside our Docs and Jocks radio studio. Hey, uh, joined each week by co- my co-host Ferris Potter. Ferris uh, is the sports broadcaster for Grand Canyon University. And a couple big stories out there, Ferris, I think, in the baseball world. And by the way, I think Mike Ryan is one of the uh, cutting-edge guys on hitting. I love that interview. Did you find out something new? I mean, I, I, mean I, I love the fact getting the ball in the air, hitting it hard. You can hit home runs and not strike out. I love all that, man. I thought it was funny when he said, uh, you know, 
hit the ball in the air. There's only three guys out there, and there's five on there, six on the infield. <laughs> yeah, I was that's like, true. Huh? I never yeah, thought of that. Yeah, that's a good yeah, point. I, point. I, I, I mean, we've been talking baseball, playing baseball forever. I never thought of that. But we grew up in an era where it was always like hit the ball on the ground or hit line drives because yeah. a lot of times the thought was, well, if, you, you, if you're hitting it up in the air, you're swinging under it, you're swinging for the fence as you're popping it up. And, there, you know, we do see a lot of guys hit, you know, can of corns to the outfield and things like that. But – to that point, you get the velocity up on your swing and you get that thing going. And a guy like Altuve, I mean, you know, you can you can hit a lot on runs and do a lot of damage hitting the ball to the outfield. Hey, Ferris, here's a question for you. If guys continue to hit the ball in the outfield more than they hit ground balls, would there ever be a time, and you couldn't do it in a double play situation, so you wouldn't not have a shortstop and second baseman in a double play situation, but what if you moved one of your infielders to the outfield like a rover you have in softball when there wasn't a double play situation, and then you just – keep your normal infield on the pool side and just have your shift guy over playing a shortstop third base, like say if it's a left-hander up. So you're playing with four outfielders. Why, why would, couldn't you do that? Yeah, I think I think that's great. I mean, unless, you know, there are people who want to outlaw the shift because they just don't don't like it. It's annoying, you know. But <laughs> yeah. a lot of times in the shift with a pool hitter, your second baseman is standing 30 feet out in the grass. Yeah. Yeah. So so you're right. Why not do that? If, if, if Bellinger comes up and 80% of the time, 70% of the time, he hits the ball the outfield – why not actually just put a fourth outfielder out there yeah. all the way yeah. and just be like, hey, we're going to play with a first baseman, a second baseman on the side, and one, and maybe even nobody on the left side. Yeah. Man, that'd be crazy. Yeah, I can Wouldn't see it with not- Bellinger. His Bellinger swing, I don't even know how he ever hits a ground ball unless he just tops it, you know, because he is swinging such a high launch angle. I think it's like 40 degrees or something crazy like that. So, yeah, I don't know. I just thought of that, but why not put another guy? If it continues, the trend continues where everybody's trying to hit the ball in the outfield why not do that? Talk about a team. I mean, would you be huh? would that? you be okay with that though, as a baseball fan? I mean, there are many people who hate the shift and want it outlawed because they just think it messes with the aesthetics of the game. But I, I personally think, well, you're using what you know, and you're you know there are no rules trying as to, far as where you have to play anybody. So yeah, I don't even know why yeah. that's an argument. People who don't Your like pitchers got to like, be on the mound. Yeah, that's I got it. Foot on the rubber. That's it, man. You got. I guess you need a catcher, or else the ball would just hit the ref or the ump right in the. <laughs> yeah. In the yeah, but, but other than that, playing wherever you want to play him, man. Yeah, if you want to play yeah, six outfielders, play okay six outfielders. It. Yeah, I don't know why there's uh, that discussion because the rule is you got to score more runs than the other team, and you have to play within the rules. And there is no rules on where you have to play your infielders and outfielders and how many there has to be. Just put your players where they need to go, and that's the that's the hitter's problem, not the not the infield or outfield problem as far as where they play. If you continue to hit the balls in the right field over and over and over again, I'm going to put an extra player in right field. We shift players all the time. The shift's been in effect in the outfield our entire career, right, Ferris? I mean, we grew up, it was a left-handed oh, yeah. hitter, and you're playing center field. You moved over into the, le- yeah, they the, always move the right center gap. Yeah, you've done that forever. Just now they're doing it more in baseball. Oh, yeah. Hey, yeah. speak about a team that is trending in the wrong way. Let's talk about the New York Yankees right now, man. Their record's still hanging in there, but they are going dropping like flies. Now we find... Their closer, Araldis Chapman, now is the latest to go on to the DL. He's on the 10-day DL with, uh, they're calling it knee tendinitis. So, first of all, before we talk about the ramifications of losing their closer, let's talk about what knee tendinitis means. It's a really a kind of a junk diagnosis. There is no such diagnosis as a knee tendinitis. You name tendinitises based on what tendon is involved. So, in your knee, there are several tendons. And the largest one is called your patellar tendon. It's that tendon that you know, attaches your kneecap down to your lower leg, and that's your patella mm-hmm. is your is the kneecap. And so they call that your patellar tendon. And we sometimes call that jumper's knee where people like, oh, remember Kobe Bryant was one of the first guys to really, really start getting into uh, using 
platelet-rich plasma injections where you, you know, he's flying over to Germany to have a guy do them over there. Now you can get them in the United States where you basically draw your blood off, spin it down, take the healing layer called your platelet-rich plasma layer, which has all the good healing properties, and you inject it back into the tendon. And, and Kobe Bryant was doing that. That probably is what the New York Yankees pitcher is dealing with. But when you put the diagnosis knee tendonitis, as a, as a sports medicine physician, it, it really means nothing other than he's having some pain about the knee somewhere. I don't really know exactly where, but most likely a patellar tendonitis, but you don't really know. And so uh, with Aroldis Chapman now going down, you're going to see the Yankees uh, have to shift their bullpen. They've already lost. We know we've talked about Aaron Judge here the last several Docs and Jocks shows. He's, he's yeah. had a, a wrist fracture that just won't heal. Now he's saying he's still having pain even at this point in time. So his three-week initial window, which they said he'd be back by, is now turning in. By the way, when we first had that initial injury, they said it was a fracture. I said it would take four to six weeks. He may end up being the six-week guy, by the way. Four to six weeks, man. I know. Four to six yeah, I know. weeks, That's everything. That's what it is. Yeah, because fractures heal in four to six weeks, typically six weeks. And then you've also um, got now D.D. Gregarious goes down. Their shortstop is down. So they've taken uh, put Neil Walker at second base, who's been, by the way, played lights out since he's coming in, got his chance. And they moved Torres over to shortstop because Boone has said all year long basically have a second baseman or shortstop playing second base in Torres, but you couldn't put Gregorius, Gregorius anywhere else. So Torres is now playing shortstop, and they're still playing pretty good. And then um, and what happened to D.D. Gregorius is he uh, he had a heel bruise. And what a heel bruise is is he landed awkwardly as he collided with uh, Kendry Morales of the Yankees, by the way, a bad guy to collide with, big dude. Yeah, yeah big, big dude. And uh, he landed, and he came down and landed on his heel. And that calcaneus bone, which is a very dense bone, it's hard to fracture, but it can bruise. And it bruises the structures on the bottom of your foot, too. You've probably all heard of plantar fasciitis. And there's a little bursa underneath your heel that can get injured and irritated. And that's what uh, Gregorius is out with. And this is on top of losing their all-star catcher, Gary Sanchez, to uh, what you've dealt with for years, Ferris, with a groin injury. And so you got Sanchez out. You've got Gregorius out at uh, shortstop. You've got Aaron Judge still out. And now you find out Araldis Chapman. All that said, and the Yankees are still holding their own, still playing pretty good. But it does not bode well for a playoff run if you lose your shortstop, catcher, out right fielder, and uh, who am I leaving out? Uh, Judge. Uh, oh, and your closer. Uh, your closer, yeah. 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 That's yeah. Not, that's a bode well. I mean, well. they've got – They've got a nice bullpen, you know, they've, they've strengthened that. So I think that might be okay in that area, but yeah, if it's a long time, what happens is they might be okay, but then you just extend those guys. So then those guys are tired. As you mentioned, when they make the playoffs, what is it about 37 games left or something like that? 31 games left. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so to your point, it's, it's the Yankees are going to have to win a one game wild card playoff and they, they should be hosting it right now, but Seattle's right there knocking on the door, what, four games back of the wild card and eight games back. But they, they should be okay. They should make the playoffs, even with all these injuries. The problem is, are you going to get by, you know, Seattle if Paxton's healthy throwing against you, or are you going to get by um, Oakland? And then you're going to go into a, a series with probably against Boston, yeah. who is just a juggernaut, even though sales hurt now. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think they're okay to get there. But you're right. If they if all those guys are still injured, they're gonna have a, a real tough time advancing. Yeah, because face it, when the Cubs won the World Series, uh, was it two years ago? They pretty much shut down the ninth inning with Rawls Chapman. I mean, he was just gonna come in. He was gonna be lights out. You were gonna win. If you won an eight inning game, you won the game 
incompletions. So, yeah, the Yankees were hoping to get that same thing. But Roldis Chapman, you know, he's had a lot of wear and tear. Man, he's thrown a lot of innings, been a lot of postseasons now. And uh, so he's starting to get some of those types of injuries. And he has kind of an awkward motion as he throws as well. I don't know if it's from landing on his knee that caused it or what. But, yeah, hopefully he'll be around. Can I just say, Dr. Dan, you're, you're showing extreme growth and maturity. You just mentioned the Cubs winning a World Series did yeah, and did didn't it. fall out of your chair. I know. And have like a seizure or something. You and said that so calmly. They go out and they get Cole Hamels, one of my favorite pitchers for the Texas Rangers. <laughs> then they go out and they get Daniel Murphy, one of my favorite players in the big leagues. And uh, so they. You're keep... a Cubs fan. Admit it. You're a Cubs fan. You love the Cubbies. I wanted Joe Madden to go to the Cardinals after uh, Larusa retired, and he ends up going to the stinking Cubs. And uh, he's he, <laughs> all these. There it is. And Trey there it is. and Trey Forkaway, who was their uh, head uh, cross checker, uh, head scout, in our. Uh, Texas area, by the way, is from uh, the same town as me, as Abilene, Texas. So, oh man, the Cubs, the stinking Cubs. I'm you, a five year, five generation Cardinals fan. Yeah. For our listening audience, this is how much of a Cardinal fan Dr. Dan is. He sends me a scathing text ripping the Milwaukee Brewers because they haven't extended their their uh, netting. Yeah. And and bat, bat in the stands. And it, he's right. It is stupid, but it was scathing because it's a central division <laughs> opponent. I if call it had been the Dodgers, it would have been like, why don't they do that? This was like, oh, the Brewers are morons. Why don't they do that? I'm watching the Cardinals and the Brewers, and I forget which Brewer player. It was a pitcher, actually. He loses his bat, and he goes flinging into the stands. And I'm like, oh, there's that netting there. It goes right over the dugout, right in the stands, whacks a dude. Why would you not, if it's, if it's now, every major league stadium has the netting extending beyond third base for that very reason that fans don't get killed with foul balls and don't get killed with baseball bats. Why would you choose to be one of the only teams that doesn't put that down? You and I talked about this. You went yeah. to an uh, Arizona Diamondbacks game, found no problem with sitting behind that screen, and not. And by the way, you enjoy the family much better when you're not having to worry about your young daughter getting clocked in the head by a 95 right. mile an hour foul ball as you do when your that netting's there. I have a, I've, I sit in seats at the Rangers games when I go to the Rangers uh, with my good friend Ron Butler every year. His seats are sitting right behind third base. I don't mind looking through the netting. It doesn't change my game experience as it used to when it wasn't there. I don't. I don't know it. why it's not mandatory. I thought it was going to be mandatory. I, I I'm I'm I don't know why. I mean, there's certain things. I don't know why that's not mandatory. I don't know why the 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 batter's helmet with the with the with the guard around the jaw, jaw isn't mandatory. I don't understand why. They don't really put some emphasis on developing something for the pitcher to wear yeah. um, around his around his at least on his skull. You know, yeah. um, I don't know why some of those things just. I mean, MLB just tell tell Milwaukee extend the nets. It's mandatory. Yeah, here's another one because they're always so concerned about player safety and guys getting injured, straining their hamstrings. How about just protecting the dugout where the players sit with some type of just a protective net going across there? Because man, when balls come through there, come ricocheting through the dugout, you've got no time. I'm just telling you. I've sat in many dugouts where balls hit the concrete wall behind my head before I ever moved. I mean, it's that fast. If it hits you in the head, I mean, I understand why that isn't part of the game as well, where they protect players. If you know it could protect five players a year from getting drilled in the head, the chest, the shoulders, in the dugout, it's, it's minimal expense and it increases safety and it's automatically day one an improvement. The real question, though, is have you bought a Matt Carpenter salsa T-shirt? No, but I've tried to order the salsa. You know, they're supposedly Adam Wainwright are going to make this into a business. Obviously, I mean, yeah, they got. I think they got the salsa right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. So for those who don't it's know what this story. is, so Matt Carpenter for the first month of the season is hitting oh, 140. He, he literally for the active players in the major leagues has the worst 
numbers, the worst statistical numbers for any active player in the major leagues for the first month of the season. Him and Adam Wainwright, he's, he's a funny starting pitcher for the Cardinals, they decide they're going to start making salsa together, homemade salsa from some things that their wives are growing in their garden. So they make their own homemade salsa. For whatever reason, the timing just happens to coincide with Matt Carpenter going off. His first month of the season, he hits one home run. For the rest of the season, he's hit 33, and he now leads the major leagues in home runs. His, his average went from 140. He's now hitting almost you know 280, nearly 300, and he's having a, a great run. And they're all saying it's because of the salsa. So I'm trying to buy the salsa not only because I'm a Cardinals fan, because I want to feed some to my high school son to give him a little salsa before he goes and uh, does his next showcase. How about that? It's that a mental selfish? game, baby. It's the <laughs> mental game. It really, I, I believe it. I'm not superstitious, but I would never, I'd never switch what I've been doing if I was Matt Carpenter. Oh, no way, man. When I used to go five for five in a game, I wouldn't change my underwear for a week, man. I wouldn't change anything. My I wore the same sandies. I didn't care what he stunk like, looked like. I wasn't changing anything, man. It was all staying the same. Hey, speaking of saying the same, man, we love our listeners, man. We appreciate that you listen to us every week, man. And remember, you can find out more about our show. We'd love for you to be part of our show by asking a question at docsandjocks.com, D-O-X-N-J-O-X.com. And you can go there and you can email us your question. I'd love to have you on our show that way. We'll be right back with more Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show, after this short break. Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show. Man, it's been such a great show today. Appreciate you being with us here on your sports medicine radio show. Remember, you can follow us each week at docsandjocks.com, D-O-X-N-J-O-X.com, or on our iTunes podcast, Docs and Jocks, D-O-X-N-J-O-X. I want to say thank you for making us one of the fastest-growing podcasts out there, man. Our show's been taken off in the podcast world, world as well as our now national syndicated radio show with SB Nation. I want to say thank you. Big shout-out to SB Nation. Join you each week by my co-host, Ferris Potter. Ferris is the voice of Grand Canyon University. Man, Ferris, uh, it's been a great show. If, if you missed the first segment, our first hour, I mean, you, Tim Couch was a great interview. Tim Couch was the first-round draft pick of the Cleveland Browns back in 1999, former Heisman Trophy finalist, as well as a SEC All-American at University of Kentucky where he set numerous records. You uh, want to go back and listen to that, you can, as well as you can listen to uh, Fastball USA CEO Mike Ryan, one of the premier hitting instructors in the country, talking all about launch angle, exit velocity, all those cool things as well. Ferris, I thought in our last couple minutes here we could talk about the uh, statements that Bill's Former Bills uh, Willie McGinnis said when he was talking about NFL and the rule changes to make player safety a higher pre- uh, preference and priority. He basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, these rules are really, really good rules. The players aren't necessarily going to like these rules, but when they get older, they're going to understand that the NFL is trying to protect them and that these are good rules that are happening. You're talking about leading with your head and those kind of things. Give us your quick take here in our last couple of minutes, Ferris, on uh, what Willie McGinnis had to say. Well, I think he's right on. I mean, you know, the NFL's trying to make it safer, but, you know, everybody recognizes there's an inherent danger that you just can't make totally safe. And so guys are still making those decisions, and some guys are like, well, why, you know, just halfway measures? Let's just play it how it is. But you gotta, you got to take some steps to try to make it safer. But it, it's just a tough game. Yeah, you know, he, he referenced, too, in the interview the uh, Ryan Shazier injury and how if guys will stop leading with their heads, some of these injuries that can be life-altering and sometimes life-threatening, like the Ryan Shazier injury, we can see less of those. And anything that decreases that risk and decreases those numbers of injuries, in my opinion, is a good thing in football. And I understand that football is a violent game, absolutely. And it's the conundrum we're in. We love 
to watch violence. It's, uh, if you watch it, UFC ratings have gone sky high in the last decade. Uh, people watch NASCAR races because there's a ri- risk of a race. We like to watch it, but at the same time, we don't like to see our heroes, the Dave Dewersons of the world that I grew up watching in the Chicago Bears shelf. We don't like to see those guys injured for the rest of their lives and eventually take their life because of CT and those kind of things. So there has right. to be a happy balance somewhere. Hey, what I want to say to do is uh, say thank you to our last few seconds here to our wonderful listening audience. Hey, remember, you can follow Ferris and I on uh, docsandjocks.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, as well as uh, man Twitter and all those things. We'll be back next week with more of your Sports Medicine Radio Show, Docs and Jocks.